You guys ready to get into the Word? Yeah. And tonight's going to be a good night. Got all of our recording devices? Yeah, all 30 of them. <laughs> Make sure that every word is recorded. All right. Well, good evening, Saints. Good evening. Tonight, we are going to be covering the 25th chapter of the second section of Chronicles. Our subject matter tonight covers the life of Amaziah, the not-so-amazing son of Joash. This topic is going to be extremely pertinent to the lives in this room and could not be more timely according to what God is doing in our body and the One Association as a whole. I'll be completely honest with you before we begin. Judah and I are preachers that are being trained by the best. We often have a tendency to use fascinating homiletics, at least so we think, and energetic preaching styles to emphasize a point or draw your attention. While it is our aim to transfer the impact of every word to you in a manner that we receive it, it is not our goal to simply have an emotional impact on you tonight. It's not our goal to be flashy, not our goal to be loud. Due to the seriousness of what God is speaking to our body and the convicting, searing nature of the word itself, we know that you will be attentive to what God is saying as we relate to you what God spoke to us in prayer for you. Amen. We cannot afford to miss what God is speaking to our families and churches in these times. True. It is absolutely imperative Say imperative. imperative. It is absolutely imperative to listen, understand, and put into action what God is trying to accomplish in our midst. It's been more imper- imperative lately than it ever has been. Tonight, there are lives, callings, and families on the line. 2020 has been a tough year for our churches, wouldn't you say? Yes. And yet, we have begun to see God's hand at work in those who call on his name. Amen. Before we begin, we would like to have our elders open up in prayer for our oh, meeting tonight. That's a good choice. We have three elders, and that means three times the amount of anointed prayer <laughs> for this meeting. <laughs> Help us to be clear in our understanding of what you are bringing us to receive 
wholeheartedly teaching this evening, mighty God. Father, we are excited for the things you're doing in these times. We're excited for the things you're showing us. All the church of the one association in these times, Lord, and we recognize that things are changing. Things are getting more intense, more serious, Lord, and we receive that. We don't know exactly what you have for us and what we are to do about it, mighty King. We stand ready to listen to you, Lord. Help us to receive and have our hearts wide open for this message. Father, we thank you for the things that you have provided. Lord, we praise your good character. Lord, we thank you for the leadership that is in this church. Lord, we thank you for the Piro family. Lord, for the Sutherland family. Lord, for the elders that lead us and set an example for us. Lord, and we thank you that you treat us as sons and you speak to us directly and you show us what is happening and what is to come. Lord, we say we tune our ears into the voice of the Spirit this evening. Lord, that it would not fall on deaf ears in this room. Lord, that we will hear, obey, and respond. Lord, we commit this time into your hands. And say, do as you will with us, mighty King. Amen. Amen. Brother Lentonius, if you will go ahead and help us out by reading chapter 25. Mm-hmm. Sir. And Messiah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoiada. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. After the kingdom was firmly in his control, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. Yet he did not put their sons to death, but acted in accordance with in accordance with what is written in the law, in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sins. Amaziah called the people of Judah together and assigned them according to their families to, to commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He then mustered those 20 years old or more and found that there were 300,000 men ready for military service, able to handle the spear and the shield. He also hired 100,000 fighting men from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, these troops from Israel must not march with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, not with any of the people of Ephraim, even if you go and fight courageously in battle, God will overthrow you before the enemy, for God has the power to help or to overthrow. Amaziah asked the man of God, But what about the hundred talents I paid for these Israelite troops? The man of God replied, The Lord can give you much more than that. So Amaziah dismissed the troops who had come to him from Ephraim, and he sent them home. They were furious with Judah and left for home in a great rage. Amaziah then marshaled his strength and led his army to the Valley of Salt, where he killed 10,000 men of Syria. The army of Judah also captured 10,000 men alive, took them, into the, took them to the top of a cliff and threw them down, so that all were dashed to pieces. Meanwhile, the troops that Amaziah had sent back and had not allowed to take part in the war raided Judean towns from Samaria to Betharon. They killed 3,000 people and carried off great quantities of plunder. When Amaziah returned from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought back the gods of the people of Seir. He set them up as his own gods, bowed down to them, and burned sacrifices to them. The anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah. 
And he sent a prophet to him who said, Why do you consult those this people's God, which could not save their own people from your hand? While he was still speaking, the king said to him, Have we appointed you an advisor to the king? Stop. Why be struck down? So the prophet stopped but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you, because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. After Amaziah, king of Judah, consulted his advisors, he sent this challenge to Jehoash, son of Jehoash, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel. Come, meet me face to face. But Jehoash, king of Israel, replied to Amaziah, king of Judah. A thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon. Give your daughter to my son in marriage. Then a wild beast in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. You say to yourself that you are defeated Edom, and now you are arrogant and proud. But stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah also? Hmm. Amaziah, however, would not listen, for God so worked that he might hand them over to Jehoash, because they sought the gods of Edom. So Jehoash, king of Israel, attacked. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. Hmm. Judah was routed by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. Then Jehoash brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, a section about 600 feet long. He took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of God that had been in the care of Obed-Edom. Mm together with the palace treasures and the hostages and returned to Samaria. Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel. As for the other events of Amaziah's reign from beginning to end, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they conspired against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent men after him to Lachish and killed him there. He was brought back by horse and was buried with his fathers in the city of Judah. All right, so I know this was the riveting story of heroism that you were hoping for this evening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that you were thinking to yourself, I just cannot wait to see another compromised king die on a Monday night. Right. We woke up thinking the exact same thing ourselves, I promise you. Our heart's desire was to hear about another man failing. Yeah, no, that wasn't the reality at all. <laughs> However, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Yahweh Sabaoth, our Almighty, our Savior, from Michael on this end of the room all the way over to Micaiah on the other end of the room, has ordained that there's something that he wants us to learn. Amen. Amen. Our pastoral staff prayed and selected the book it wasn't on a whim. It wasn't what we wanted to teach on as a preference. We asked the living God to lay out what we would be studying as a body, and it just so happens he's able to bring about what we need in God's timing. Before we jump into the chapter this evening, we want to lay out the landscape. We will cover the historical details. We will learn about Amaziah's life, I promise you. But we want to get an idea for what the Spirit of God is speaking to us as we enter into the chapter. 
to get the tenor or the temperature, if you will. Fair enough? Yes. I'm going to hand out a couple passages and we'll start to work through this together. Matthew 3, 7 through 12 is going to be our first passage. Nolan, why don't you get that one for us? And we'll interrupt you a few times in that particular passage. Then our next one is going to be Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Nick, why don't you get it? After that's going to be Amos 9, 9 through 10. JJ, will you get that one? Yes. Brenton, Isaiah 17, 4 through 6. Micaiah, get Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Abambola, if you would get John 15, 1 through 7. Steve Thomas, Luke 22, 28 through 34. And then that will round us out. Whoever has Matthew 3, get to it first. Matthew 3, 7 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Come on. Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Pause there for just a minute. So it's a Monday night. We just had a time change. It's a little later as far as our bodies are concerned. Let's pretend that this isn't a verse we've heard a hundred times. But when he saw many of the Pharisees, who's speaking here, saints? John the baptizer or the immerser, as Abambola likes to say, and I'm with him on that. Amen. The immerser. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Well, presumably it looked like they were coming for a baptism of repentance. Isn't that a good thing? That's what it looked like. At the very least, that's what they were projecting in this moment. That what they were seeking was a baptism of repentance and what John was preaching in preparation for the arrival of the Christ. But apparently, John the Immerser saw something that we wouldn't notice offhand. Pick up in verse 8 again for me and read through 10. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Mm. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Mm. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down Mm. and thrown into the fire. I want to tell you this evening that there is life, there is hope. There is joy and there will be victory in this house. That this is also a word that God has spoken to us directly in years past and that he's bringing back to mind. The necessity of keeping fruit with repentance. They're not thinking to yourself that I have this as my father. I'm somehow irreplaceable. Now God can raise up from stones children for Abraham. And that the axe is at the root of the sinful. The axe is at the root of those that are in the community of believers and those that do not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Those of you that have been around a little while should be familiar with that word of prophecy that the Lord gave us. Pick up in verse 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And good fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, obviously, 
like Judah said, they were coming, projecting that they were there to be baptized. I mean, this was baptism into repentance, and they're showing up. These are the most dedicated, devoted men that you could find. Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the ones that lived by the law and everything that they did. You had Sadducees, the most strict adherents of the Torah you could find. And they're coming, and they're projecting something. They're projecting that we are people that want to join in and be baptized into repentance. Well, obviously John sensed that they had a different standard in their hearts. Obviously he sensed that there was a different standard inside of them than what they were projecting. There always has been one standard. There always is one standard. There is no possible way that there could be two standards in the body of Christ And yet it is so easy to project. It's so easy to follow. It's so easy to think that there is a different standard. And what John is doing is calling them out because he sees what's in their hearts. By the way, did you hear that it says the axe is already at the root of the trees? He puts it in the present tense. Mm -hmm. Like this is already happening. The Lord is already cutting off things that do not belong. Man, if that was true 2,000 years ago, how true is it today? Through John... God was refining His people. He was strengthening the wheat and warning the chaff. Come on. Through John's ministry of baptism into repentance, through what John was doing, God was using John as a force to refine His people, to do both at the same time, to strengthen the wheat, those that had one standard inside of them, who were ready to produce fruit in in repentance. He was strengthening them. And you see that there. But you also see the chaff, those that have no, they have no uh, desire to actually repent and get right. He gives them a strong warning. The day is coming. Now, we, we said it was present tense, but we also want to talk about future. The day is coming when God will reward the wheat. That is so rich Amen. in the Bible yeah. that God will reward the wheat yeah. for persevering. But he will also burn the chaff at the same time. There is two things that happen simultaneously when God begins to sift a people. As he begins to reward the wheat, grow them, and burn up the chaff. There is no increase of the Spirit's power in our life. There is no increase of the Spirit's power in our life without a proportional increase of the fire of God. Did you see there that it says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Yeah. Well, those two things are not the same thing. No. Fire in the Bible has to do with judgment and what God is showing to the people. The Holy Spirit is what empowers. Well, those, ha- those things happen simultaneously. An increase of the Spirit's power in your life is always proportional to the increase of the amount of judgment that is around you. The amount of judgment on your own sin. The amount of judgment on your own current state. When that fiery judgment is, is alive in your life, there is also the pouring out of the Spirit's power to help you walk in victory Amen. after you've judged what you need to judge. Yeah. It's not a youth camp fire. No. When we hear about pouring out a fire and coming down at an altar and just staying there for a little while while we feel all warm, that's not what this is about. Yeah. It means the raging kind of consuming fire that God uses to burn up your sin and then immediately after, after that sin is burned up on the altar, He fills you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, after praying and discussing tonight's subject matter with the pastoral staff, it seemed good to the Spirit 
to take the time to revisit words of prophecy that were given to our body yesterday. Did you hear a couple prophecies that were given? Did any of you take note of those prophecies? You should have. Those were very serious words. And I, I don't know about you. It's all too easy to hear that and then think, man, well, somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed. No. What they spoke, what these men had in words of prophecy was exactly what the Lord is doing in our body right now. And Judah's going to read that to you. Saints, this came forward yesterday. It's a word that is worth contemplating. And then after reviewing it with the leadership, we think we should sit on it for a little while. Yeah. Not pretend that it was just an emotional moment and move on. Right. As I read this, I'm reading off a text. I'm asking you to tune everything else out and consider that the voice of God is speaking to you. I have been sifting you. Do you not perceive it? I have been threshing you. Do you not see it? I want to encourage the wheat that I will bring you into my storehouse. And I will refine you. Not with fire, but as a father refines his son. And as a farmer refines the wheat... He has harvested. But I am warning you, chaff. I am threshing and I am sifting. And my fire is being kindled. And the axe is at the root. There are some of you that I will no longer allow to stand in my presence and mock me. Take courage, O wheat, for I will refine you. And be afraid, O chaff, and repent, or I will burn you. I am shaking this church, and what can be shaken will fall off, and what cannot stand will. But this is coming to an end. I am coming to a crossroads, and I will not allow it any longer. Before we move to the next piece, we know that the scripture is inspired. It's breathed of the living God. It is God's word on the page. When we essentially just read in Matthew 3 what this prophecy was about. Yet it's an entirely different thing when the voice of God confirmed by our leaders, testified to by the men in the room, says this is of us in this moment. Be afraid, O chaff, and repent, or I will burn you. Take courage, O wheat, for I will refine you. Saints, the living God is giving us essentially two options this evening. The wheat that is refined... By the farmer, by the father, and the chaff that is being burned up. To the extent to which that relates to different areas of our life, we'll determine which camp we are in. So our heart's desire is not to shrug off the word of the Lord, but to heed it. To understand it, to take note of it. And to leave zero wiggle room in this house. God is saying we're either going to be wheat or chaff this evening. That it's one or the other and both are going to be refined. It's just a question of how we will relate to it. Romans 15.5 came forward yesterday. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ. So that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, the living and active word at work in us. The God who is able to give us endurance, encouragement in this room is demanding that we have a spirit of unity among us. Amen. 
I just had some time where I was able to sit with some amazing disciples and an elder at the Arising Church. You know what the Spirit was speaking to them about? What they were crying out to the living God about? What real unity looks like that is more than just fellowship at church? Where you know what it is to be unified of one heart, one mind, and one vision that everything else would be burned to the wayside. It's almost as if the Spirit speaks to the churches. Our last note here is church. We are on a mission. The One Association is on a mission. LCM is on a mission in tandem with the mission of the One Association. It is time to crucify and leave your own counter missions behind. Today is the day that you crucify those things and you come into the fold with one mind, one heart, with one body in Jesus Christ. That your own desires pass away. That's God's mission in the mission of the body. Is all that you will stand for. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Now I want you to know before we read these next passages that uh, like we said in the beginning, Jude and I were simply looking at another king of compromise and thought, what in the world are we going to share on? And uh, after talking with our pastors, Jude and I began to put together, we prayed, we prayed through the tabernacle, we repented, we got right areas that we did not know that were inside of us, and then we left from the tabernacle and began to put together a scripture string. After we put together the scripture string, we didn't know what the, uh, we heard the prophecy yesterday, but we didn't know exactly what the wording was. And we begin to text and call Nolan and say, hey, can you hurry up and, and write it out for us? Because we want to share it tonight. And we found that exactly what was prophesied yesterday was the scripture string that we put together after praying through the tabernacle. Amen. You think God's trying to speak something to us? Yes. Yes. He's got Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds wow. among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. All right, pause right there. Now, I know many of you, when you read this passage, you think of the field and you go, man, that's the world. No. God has sown good seed out in the world, and those are the sons of righteousness. And, you know, right there, God, the devil came and sowed some bad people. Well, that's not at all what it's talking about. The field is not the world. He is speaking to believers in this passage. The kingdom of heaven. Is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. We ought to be viewing the field as our church. You know what that means for our church? That there are good seed in this church. Man, say amen. There's good seed. But there's also bad seed in our church. And it's our job to find out where that bad seed is and try to get rid of it. That field is our church. Our one association And, take it a step further, even our own hearts. Amen. That field is us. And there is good and there is bad there. We're going to find out where the bad is tonight. Good seed has been sown. According to the Lord's directive to our body, good fruit is not the only thing present in this room, according to that prophecy. In this room right now, according to the prophecy we heard, good wheat is not the only thing that is sitting in this room. There is chaff being burned or at a razor's edge from being burned. I think you can look back at the past year and you can take a sobering thought. You could take a sobering 
picture of what God has been doing in this church. There's been some sifting, hasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The good news is that there's also wheat. Say this good news. There's good news. There is wheat here, and that's why we're assembled. Amen. Wheat that he will. Say he will. He will. He will strengthen and focus all the more on his mission for this body. The wheat are those that focus on the mission of the entire field. Not just their own personal needs and their own personal wants. That's what a weed does. The weeds are those who are growing together in the field as a whole, in unity. And he will strengthen those wheat. And those wheat will focus on the mission for his body. Amen. Pick up in verse 27, if you will. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow seed, a good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? All right, pause right there. There was an enemy that came and sowed weeds. The enemy did this. You know, when you think of that for a second, there is no, it looks the same, a weed and a wheat. But when you really examine the weed and the wheat, they are worlds apart from each other. Yeah. Anybody remember the song, America the Beautiful? I The line, Amber Waves of Grain? When you see a wheat field, you see an even, perfectly level wheat field. Everything is growing at the same level, except for the weeds. Everything is in unity in a wheat field, except for the weeds. And this is the enemy's work. When you think about that, notice something here. When we talk about vision, preference, perspective, you know, things like that. Oh, come on. When there are disagreements in our body, or let's say there is counseling sessions, it's not just a difference of vision, preference, or perspective that we're talking about tonight. We're talking about a completely different nature that some in this room tend to operate under. A completely different set of rules that we do not live by. And before, before, you, before it gets too heavy in here, I want to say there are weed in this room that operate under godly and righteous rules who have the right vision, who have the right preference, the right perspective according to the entire field. But there are also those that don't. This is not just a difference in vision, preference, or perspective. No, it is the work of the enemy. It is the work of the enemy to get us to feel like, well, it's just a matter of preference. It's not. We're talking tonight about a different nature, a weed-like nature. So we're going to carry a pace together. But I want to make sure we get this point. Somebody say, it's not preference. It's not preference. It's the work, it's the work of, the enemy. of the enemy. Stop classifying it as anything else. It's the work of Satan in your life and the work of Satan in our body. There is one vision that is the house of LCM that descended from the Father. If you don't identify with that vision, consider whether or not you're at the right church. If you are at the right church, then abandon the work of the enemy and adopt the vision that has been given Amen. by the Almighty Father. Pick up in 29 and 30. The servant asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you, while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both go together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. We serve a good God. Yes. We serve a father that is concerned about the wheat. That will take someone who is smoldering, someone who is struggling, and he will cause you to stand firm. 
He's even concerned about the day that judgment hits to make sure there is opportunity for the wheat to find their footing, to grow into what they're called to be, to be unified with the body. But he says, until the harvest, until the harvest. Saints, I want to tell you this evening, the Lord of the harvest is saying to our body, it's harvest time. I'm not saying until the harvest anymore. I'm saying now is harvest time where I will separate out the wheat and the weeds from my house. He said it in this very room. The time for digging around the roots is past. It's inspection day. Oh, to be found among those that are clearly wheat. Those that can be identified from a distance by the fruit that has grown up around them and the unity that they hold. We said earlier that some have already been burned up around us in a way that we've watched. Others are a razor's edge from being burned up yourself. Take heed, take warning. That razor's edge will not last long. It's already begun. We've already watched it. Find yourself in the unity of wheat. Stand in the works of God and heed the word of the Lord. Now, did you hear the the servants ask, do you want us to go and pull them up? That's something that that every passionate disciple has asked before. Yes. Hey, there's a weed. Should we go pull it up? <laughs> now listen. That I know that may be funny, but it's true. It is true. God has given the men, those servants, a vision for the field. They had a vision for the field. God came and planted it, and they had a vision that this field would grow up all in unison and they would have beautiful wheat. They didn't expect in their vision to see weeds grow up, did they? That's why they're reacting like that. God gave the men a vision for their field, just like he has given the men of this body a vision for this field. Amen. Now, obviously, the weeds were not a part of that vision. The weeds probably had a separate vision for themselves as well. The weeds probably thought to themselves, man, I'm going to grow in this field. I'm going to sap up some of the nourishing whatever. I'm going to do my own thing. And guess what? They had a separate vision other than, the, other than the vision for the field, and yet God had a plan for them. The most sobering thought is that both will be left to harvest. Whenever that is, leave it in your mind. But both will be left to harvest. That means that both can grow together for a certain period of time. That means both can actually show some signs of growth. That there is a time period where the weeds will grow and grow and look like wheat until their fruit is exposed. That's a sobering thought. There is a day or days coming when God sifts out of us those things or people that show themselves to belong to a different barn. We always show what barn we belong to by our acts and what we grow into. There is days that is that is already come and passed where God had showed us that there are some that belong to a different barn. And we know that there are more days coming. Amos 9. I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations. As grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. So we're speaking about the people of God being shaken like a sieve. Not speaking about the nations around, we're speaking about the people in their localities. Read verse 10. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Saints, before God will shake the nations, before the end of all things, he shakes his house. Hear the words, all the sinners among my people. 
There's a day coming when he will clear the entire field. But the threshing is now and it has been going on in our body and is being highlighted because he's bringing it to a head. This shaking that the prophet speaks about is the adversity to our sinful nature and the trials that we face daily that cause it to squeal. Everything can be shaken. Everything that is not rooted in wheat and rooted in Christ will be shaken. God is shaking our body, shaking our very lives to root out sin. And among his own people, those who are called by his name, he says, all of the sinners among my people will die by the sword. And those who say disaster will not overtake us or meet us. Those who consider themselves safe, consider themselves to be wheat because of a prior experience with the living God. Saints were saying, let the living God shake you now in sifting. Let him shake you and stir you towards righteous action, towards wheat-like behavior. Better yet, to a heart that is like wheat. Isaiah 17, 4 through 6. Start reading it. Now in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade, and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. And it will even be like the reaper gathering the standing grain as his arms harvest the ears. Or it will be like one gleaming ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives on the topmost bough, four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. Look, our God is a faithful God who is trimming the fat. There is a body that he's after. It's a lean, mean, fighting machine of men and women who love the Lord and are willing to do his will. And he's a faithful God who's trimming us. He's trimming the fat, even right now. Those in the body that have variant visions or slightly different versions will not survive. They have to be in the body, in the people of God, flourishing together as one unit. Those that have different visions, you know what you call that? Division, two different visions, they won't survive because they're the ones that tend to think they can grow better than the wheat next to them. God is going to trim that because he wants one body who can work together and do his will together. But you know what? Those who are beaten, shaken, or sifted and found worthy will remain. Amen. How do you how do how do you become worthy? How are you found worthy? Well, you have to be like that olive tree that is beaten. You have to be shaken. You have to be sifted. And through that sifting, you are found worthy because you are willing to die and persevere in the field God planted you in. God is faithful in our lives to show us where we need to grow. But more than that, he's faithful to his body first. Amen. Now, God is a faithful God. He will show you individually what you need to get right. But you have to understand something. If you will not be sifted and found worthy, his concern is not really for you. We all like to think that his concern is for me, my family, my calling, what God has me to do here. And that is not his concern. Did you hear every passage can be likened to a field or to the people of Israel, the people of God as a whole, his entire body? His first and foremost concern is his body first, not individual people. He desires a holy, unified and strengthened remnant. Those that have survived the shaking and they are those olives on topmost branches. Let's pick up in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. 6, 16 through 19. 
There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes up lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So look, before we get into the nitty-gritty details of this text, there are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are detestable to Him. That's a Jewish literary device that is not common to us. When we hear six and seven, most of us do the math and we're like, 13. (laughs) Then we read and only see seven, and that's slightly confusing to our Greek minds. This is a way of highlighting, saying the six things that you're going to read about first, I hate. The seventh in the list, I find utterly detestable before my sight. It's highlighting among the seven that I hate, the one that is the very worst in my eyes. The Lord despises these things in our lives. He despises them in his body. A haughty eye, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick, that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness or a slanderous tongue, if you will, who pours out lies. But the seventh is a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Saints, our God is a good God. He is actively working to sift these things out of our church daily. Actively working to sift these things out of our life daily. Because they cannot remain. We serve a holy and a righteous God. And to draw near to Him, to be unified with His body... We cannot hold on to the things that he hates in this house. They must be separated and come out from that kind of wickedness. He cannot stand those who have division, two visions, that have separated what God has spoken to them in their unique own little way. And I'm going to run alongside the wheat and I'm going to grow. I'm going to take all of the nutrients. I'm going to take the water, but I'm still going to do my own thing. Saints. Our king has highlighted the things that are choking the life out of the wheat in our own life. Haughty eyes, lying lips, and dissension and division among brothers must die. There is no other vision. There is one vision in this house. We will see churches planted in the United States that will send families into the Middle East. And every family in this room will either support it or be one doing it. There is no other direction in this place. Who has John 15? John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he proves so that it will be even more fruitful. All right, pause that for a second. I want to change your understanding of what that verse is saying. Most of the time we read that and we go, oh man, thank God he's going to cut off every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, right? That's not what it's saying at all. He cuts off every branch in him that bears no fruit. You know what that means? You can absolutely be in him and not bear fruit. He says every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit. That means you can be in Christ and not bear fruit. Mm -hmm. Now let that warn you. While he's doing that, everyone that does bear fruit, he makes it even more prune. He prunes it to make it more fruitful. Now, those two things sound similar. Cutting off branches and then pruning things in your life. Those things look similar. I wonder how easy it is 
to be a branch that bears no fruit and just say, man, God's pruning me, when in fact he's actively working to cut off things. This fruit has to be produced in accordance with being in him. And guess what? Being in him doesn't mean that you are driving your car alone and you are in Christ because you're listening to Hillsong. (laughs) Being in him means that you are in his field. You are in his body. You are connected to the body where he's planted you. That's what it means to be in him. Has anybody in this room had a bad day where you didn't feel like you were in him? Well, guess what? When you showed up to church, you are in him. When you showed up to this body and you connected with brothers, you were in him no matter how you felt. Fruit has to be defined by what the rest of the field is producing. That's good. I'm going to say that again. Yeah. Fruit that is produced in him is defined by what the rest of the field is producing. So if the rest of the field has a marriage teaching and the marriage teaching lays down specific things that we ought to follow and you are producing fruit in your marriage, well, you know what that means? It means producing fruit in accordance with what God is doing in the field. Not that you found some other marriage teaching and it works for you and it seems to be lightening the load a little bit. That is not fruit. Bearing fruit is in accordance with what the rest of the field is producing. Just like if you have a lemon field, whatever, if you have apple trees or an orchard, you're not going to see an orange tree in the apple field, will you? I know God called me to an apple orchard, but he planted me here and my specific calling really just produces lemons. How dare you say it's not fruit? Well, it doesn't match up with the field around you and God planted you here for a reason. It ought to match what the tender of the garden planted you for. Amen. Pick up in verse 3. We're going to keep going. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Do you hear that? Do you hear the past tense and who he's speaking to? He is speaking to the men that he is warning. Every branch in me that doesn't produce fruit, hey, I, I, I'm going to cut it off. I'm going to break them off. <laughs> and he tells them, you are already clean. It means that you can be already clean and yet become someone that does not bear fruit. Do you mean to tell me that you could be in Christ, washed clean of your sin, and yet be a branch that doesn't bear fruit? Absolutely. Keep going. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me... You got it, brother. So you're already clean, past sense. The imperative charge in this verse is to remain in what you've received. Now take that in light what we've already said. Remain in what you've received from the field that you are planted in. Remain in the rain that is being poured out on the entire field. Don't go seek to to go to another field. Don't in your thoughts cater to another field. Remain in what you have received in the field that you are planted in. Amen. It's got Luke 22, 28 through 34. So that you may eat 
drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're definitely speaking to the lost here, right? No, we're speaking to the saved and more specifically those who have stood by him in his trials that are going to be sitting on thrones that have a, a special anointing and calling out of all Israel and all generations that have lived. So this couldn't possibly apply to a grafted goyim in this room. Or maybe it could. Pick up in verse 31 and see what he said to those that stood by him in his trials that had a specific calling and anointed that walked with Christ himself. Saints, the living God is making intercession for us in this house. That is why he's warning us in advance. We are making intercession for you, that your faith may not fail, and that you would turn from wickedness. Notice here that Peter is being sifted after he has endured with Jesus, after he has stood with Christ. Also notice that Peter is going to survive the sifting, but that it isn't guaranteed in this moment. You know the end of the story. But Peter did not. There is a question being posed to men of God in this room that have stood by him in his trials. Will you endure the sifting that is coming? Will you be refined as the wheat that I made you to be? Will you become the man that I've called you to be for your family, for your brothers, for this body that I have called you to? Verse 33. That's good for a moment, brother. Peter heard what he said and he still thought he was okay. I hear you. I've stood by you before. This isn't the first time that I've endured something. I hear what is being preached in this moment, but I'm excluding myself because of my prior experience that I will stand the shaking that the living God is speaking about. This has defined many of us. While we hear warnings from God, we are sure that we're going to survive it and that it's most pertinent to someone else in the room. Maybe your wife. Or maybe the couple that you've been pouring into and you can see all of their flaws and you can't see your own. We can show many cases of this all over the room and in our history. But I think this evening I'm going to elect not to and just let your mind wander through the things that we have previously seen. Get verse 34, and Justin will help us out a little. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Now, Peter thought he was going to make it. Obviously, it was a question because Jesus had to pray for him. Jesus knew what Peter is going to do. And he also knows what you are going to do as well. Sometimes it's hidden from us what, what we will actually end up doing. Sometimes we're able to hide from other people in the room what we're going to go off and do. Sometimes we hear words like this and warnings, and we already have it planned what we're going to go do. And thank God Jesus is a faithful one who knows, gives the warning, and then says, hey, I know you. I know what you're capable of. The best thing we can do right now is take honest assessment of our lives by looking at what we have been doing. By looking at what we've done in the past, do we have a track record that shows that we have denied correction in certain areas? And then when more correction comes, we kind of shift blame to every other thing. Well, that, that's, that's my wife. Well, you know, she, 
Well, I'm trying to get it right. No, you haven't yet. And that's why the corrections are still happening. We can look back on what we have been doing, and that is a pretty good projection of what we will do. You know what changes that? Honest assessment and repentance. If you are a wheat, and you can see wheat-like fruit in accordance with where you are planted and what the field is producing, then that ought to give you good comfort. Amen. I'm not telling you to look at areas in your life where you failed and think yourself that you are a, a weed automatically. I'm talking about taking honest assessment. Have you lived in accordance to the vision with this body? If you're a weed, though, well, we shouldn't have to convince you. And honestly, there is no amount of convincing that we could do. Perhaps the most telling sign of a wheat, though, is what they do after the sifting. Hmm. Did you notice what Jesus tells Peter to do after the sifting? Yeah. yeah. He tells him. What does he say? Tells him to strengthen his brothers. To me, that is the most telling sign of a wheat. They strengthen their brothers after a sifting. I want, this people in, I want the people in this room to be soberly warned. Are others strengthened by you in this room? Are other people to your right and to your left strengthened by you being in this body? Is there something that you're offering? When you go through a sifting and it's, and it's hard, man, but you persevere, do you immediately go and strengthen other people? Or, you, or are you the one that has a tendency to bring everyone else around you down? That ought to be an honest, sober assessment that we can take right now. Saints, the brass tacks of the matter is that the Lord is giving us two options tonight. Peter, who is weak and is strengthened by the refining fire in his life, the discipline in his life, where we're becoming the leaders that we're called to be, regardless of what level you see yourself at or what place in life you're in, you are called to strengthen your brothers. Amen. You are called to strengthen your brothers and take the place of those that have gone before you and you're watching your leaders be sifted in and of themselves and learn to take a greater and greater stand. Amen. It's time that we follow in that example. Amen. One that is not dead, that is not done. One that is living and active and interacting with our king. Saints, the other option though is Judas. is the one that just caves to the sifting and runs and finds an escape route. You can find an escape route by physically running. You can find one by enduring and saying nothing and just trying to let it pass you by. Let's not be fooled. There are some in the room that you've done the exact same thing as other men who fled like Demas from this body. Mm. You've just done it with a smile and not moving. I'm telling you, the Lord is not going to tolerate it much longer. We must choose to be men like Peter that turn back to the living God and can strengthen our brothers. Amen. Our definition of fruit is worthless. It must be judged by the field, the house, and the body that he has placed us in. Does the factual fruit match up with the vision of the church? The factual fruit in your life, does it match up with what this house produces? Are you what we produce? It's okay if you're in process with it. Because we're going to be sifted and grow in it. Amen. But we have to ask, are we what this house produces? If the answer to that question is yes, then there is good news. You will be refined like Peter and made into a useful instrument in the hands of God. Amen. A useful instrument for the strengthening of your brothers and the making of other wheat. Amen. Tonight in the text you will see a sifting at play in Amaziah's life. He was a part of a holy line, a holy house, and a holy field. Yet weed-like qualities in him caused him to diverge from the Lord's vision. Those weed-like qualities that were close but not quite. 
that were in the house of God, in the field of God, but never fully realized were his downfall. Saying that this place is 825 and we're going to jump into verse 1. We are excited about what the Lord is going to do. We are also going to ask Pastor Matthew Pirro to pray for all of us, including the guys on the stage prior to entering verse 1. Yes. Mighty God, we thank you for your word that is living and active. And by it, we are strengthened. Lord, we thank you for your refining fire. Lord, that burns away in us what doesn't belong, what is not useful to you and your kingdom. And we say, let your wheat come alive inside of us, mighty God. Lord, as we engage your word, let it carve out what doesn't belong. And let it purify and refine what does. Lord, we thank you for your name that is exalted above every name. Lord, we set it high above our emotions, our thoughts, our desires, and our will. May our mission be the only mission that you have for us and none other. We love you, Lord, and thank you for strengthening us. Amen. Amen. Brother Linton, if you would read verse 1 for us again, we would greatly appreciate it. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoiada. She was from Jerusalem. Now notice here that Ezra takes the time to point out the fact that his mother is from Jerusalem. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, it's interesting because we've noticed in the last chapters and many other situations in the Bible that kings who have mothers from foreign countries tend to not do so well. Yeah. We just read about Athaliah. We just read about Jezebel and all of those witchy women. <laughs> Look, simply put, before we move on, we just want to say, single men, when you're looking for a wife, you're not just looking for a wife. You are looking for the mother of your children. You are looking for the women who will raise up your sons when you are at work, when you come home and you pick up where your wife left off. You're looking for the godly influence in your life for about the first 18 years. So think about that. Don't just pick someone just because you have personalities that are similar. Look for the mother of your children. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 2 and keep going. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All right now. (laughs) Amaziah did a few things that were right. And we'll see that in just a little bit. But like a polluted spring, there were a few things that were mixed in his heart. Truth be told, it's easy to think that as long as there's some good, then it's okay. There's some good in that brother. There's some good in that church. There's some good in that situation. But as we'll see in a moment, If there are any competing interests in our hearts that tend to take over, saints, we want to take a quick look at this word for wholehearted with you. And naturally, I'm going to show you the slide that's in Hebrew, and we're going to give the guy who speaks Hebrew the Greek slide. That'll come next. (laughs) First slide. Perfect with a heart, not. Not with a perfect heart. Uh The Hebrew word is different than what we would be used to seeing wholehearted. It's not kol leif. It's not all of his heart. The word is shalem. It's derived from shalom and means perfect or full. So in other words, he didn't love him with a perfect or a full heart. It's not just all of his attention for a moment. It's the sum total of his heart's condition was not perfect or fully for the Lord. Somebody say sum total. Sum total. 
Amaziah basically did some things that were right, but he did not do it with a perfect heart. The sum total of his heart was one that was partially for the Lord. Now let's take a look at the Greek cognate together. And he did the upright thing before the Lord, but not with heart a full. So similar to the Hebrew. This Greek word, Greek 4, 1, 3, 4, is pleuros. You've heard of pleroma, like Christ was filled with the pleroma of God's substance. That Greek word is pleuros, and it means to be full or filled. But I want to show you something. I want to show you how Jesus uses this word in Mark 4.28. I think this is, uh, it's not NIV, I forgot what it is. But I want to show you, read that for a second. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts, and then the ear. Then the full grain. Say full grain. Full, full grain. grain. Then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. In this parable, Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God consisting of seed being planted and fruit being ripened. Man, that's good when fruit is ripened, isn't it? Yeah. That's when you know you can harvest it. The word for ripe is the same Greek word for full. And you can see biblical language in the entire Bible that has the same thought. For example, how many of you have heard Abraham died ripe and full of age? Yeah. Yeah. The Hebrew thought behind that is he died at a perfect ripe moment when, his, yes. when he was a fruitful vine that had ripened to the point where he was ready to be harvested. Ezra is saying that Amaziah did what was right with the Lord, yet without a heart that has ripened, without a heart that has been perfected, or he did it without a heart that was made full. Now think about that for a second. He had good things that he did, but he was not ripe in righteousness. His heart was not perfected, and therein lies the problem. This totally smashes the idea that we can continue where God has planted us, all the while not being matured. He was in the place where God had him. He was in the field that was surrounded with wheat, and yet his own heart had not ripened or been matured. Yeah. According to Jesus' parable that we just read, what happens in the, to the fruit if it doesn't ripen? You read the parable. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle and then the harvest has come. What happens if the fruit is not ripe? There is no harvest. Man, Amaziah's heart did not fully ripen to allow the Lord a harvest in his heart. He was not allowing the Lord a proper harvest of righteousness because he did not go on to maturity. Talk to me about discipleship and I will tell you, look at the field that you are planted in. He did the right things, but his heart was not wheat. It was chaff. That is what chaff is. It is fruit that doesn't entirely ripe, and that's why it is thrown into the fire. He did not allow the Lord a harvest in his life because he didn't mature and ripen fruit. Amaziah was chaff. And just for added clarity, we want to show you something that makes chaff chaff. We want to show you the, the king's account of this very passage. It comes from 2 Kings 14, 1 through 4. 
In the second year of Jehoash, son of Joaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoadim. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. In everything, he followed the example of his father Joash. This is the exact same concept, but with different wording. Ezra is adding additional clarity. He had right actions, but he didn't have the heart of his father David behind those actions. In the passage we just looked at earlier, the earth produces by itself the first blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. What Ezra wants you to understand is that he had a heart that was for the Lord, but never came to the full maturity of a king like David. Man, you can be a man of God, be one that is called, but you never reach the kingly status that you were called to. He did not take on the factual fruit of the field around him, his fathers that had gone before him. He did not learn the heart of the house. He did not produce the produce like his father had done. In the end, he shows himself a stalk with a head, but no grain. Chaff blowing in the wind, only fit for the flame. We're going to pick up in verse 3. But the lives of these men are not of pagan kingdoms. They're of those who started on the right track, but did not reach the full, ripe harvest the living God had intended. Three and four. After the kingdom was firmly in its control, he executed the officials who had murdered his father the king. Yet he did not put their sons to death but acted in accordance with what was written in the law, in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sins. Man, what righteous restraint! He killed those who murdered his father and spared the sons according to the law of Moses. Man, my, my, the ways in which weeds and wheat can be so similar at times can be a bit perplexing if you are ever responsible for a flock. Can cause you to pray, to deeply ask the living God, what do I do and what is this? The reality is sometimes the answer is not so simple. It's still in flux. Psalm 15 verse 4 is a scripture that is close to our heart for obvious reasons. Speaking of a man who will ascend the holy hill, who despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord. Man who understands the distinction between wheat and weeds. Who keeps his oath even when it hurts. When it hurts is where we see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The wheat and the wheat. We see Amaziah so far so good. Doing what the law required. But let's see what happens as we continue to progress. We want to take a look at James 2 with you. And consider some things that may be painful to carry out. James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Say all of it. it. Now it looks like Amaziah is doing what is right here. I mean, he's following the law. He could have killed these sons. And as a king, that probably would have been the right thing to do. You know, kill the party that is trying to wipe you out. Kill the party that is the insurrection party. He's doing what's right here. He's following the law. And yet, that is one aspect of the law. If you follow 
many aspects of the law, and, that, and yet you break one part of it, you're just as guilty as if you broke all of it. It doesn't matter if you look right in doing some things of the law. It matters if you carry the entire law with a ripe heart. The problem is that he follows God's commands in areas that he feels like it. Oh, there it is. And we're going to see it in just a little bit. But this is an area where he just felt like, you know, this is the right thing to do. And then I'm sure he looked at the scripture after he did it and went, oh, man, wow, the scripture actually says what I did. And I'm sure that made him feel really good about himself. But you see, later in his life, there are areas where he does not follow the law. You know what I tend to think? This one right action most likely produced justification and self-righteousness in him. Just like when we obey for a season, and that makes us kind of complacent. You know, I'm doing pretty good. I did what the law says. Well, look what's about to happen in his life. You have to be careful that you're following the law or being obedient to something that the Lord is saying doesn't make you feel complacent in every area that the Lord is trying to speak to you after that. Oh, come on. You can't look back at it and say, man, I did what was right there, therefore I'm good and I can coast. No, you have to have a heart like Father David, a ripe heart that wants to mature in your fruit and be discipled in the field you're planted. Now let's pick up in verse 5 and keep going. Amaziah called the people of Judah together and assigned them according to their families to the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds for all Judah and all Benjamin. He then mustered those 20 years old or more and found that there were 300,000 men ready for military service, able to handle the spear and the shield. He also hired 100,000 fighting men from Israel for 100 talents of silver. Now, as a king, it's a good thing to have young men that are trained, that are soldiers, right? Yeah. But if you remember correctly, we dealt with this subject when we studied 1 Chronicles 21 in David's census. You guys remember that? We do. When a king numbers the people, they are supposed to pay a ransom and use that money for the service of the temple. A census in the Bible was never about increasing the king's confidence or self-aggrandizing his throne. It was always about redeeming the people of God and paying a bloody sacrificial cost for redemption that would go into the house of God. This is a violation of the command in Exodus 30.12. It explains the regulations for a census. His motive was to go to war, and he's assessing his own natural strength in this moment. We see this all too often with Christians who are proud that they're doing something right, and yet failing in so many other areas that they would rather not appear weak in. We're not called to rest upon our laurels in this house or contemplate all that we have gotten right in the past while ignoring the areas that are still weed-like and unfruitful in this field. Saints, we've been planted in a very specific field that must produce a fruit that matches up around us. The fruit of obedience in your life has an expiration date. <laughs> or if you will, a shelf life. Yeah. It's not the stuff that is made today, covered in plastic and constantly <laughs> aerated and misted in Walmart to make it look fresh. It actually has an expiration date on it. A shelf life. Yeah. Yeah. You know what that shelf life is? All the way up to your next act of fruitful obedience. Yeah. It's only as good as long as you're still obedient. Our God has called us to bear fruit and fruit that lasts, the kind that is an abundant harvest, that is ever increasing. 
We cannot rest on our three tomatoes from last year. It's harvest time. It's harvest time for the wheat and for the chaff. They just have different destinations. Pick up in verse 7 and 8 for us, Brother Linton. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, these troops from Israel must not march with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, not with any of the people of Ephraim. Even if you go and fight courageously in battle, God will overthrow you before the enemy, for God has the power to help or overthrow. Man, thank God for men of God. Thank God for shepherds concerned about the flock, gardeners that are concerned with the vineyard. Honestly, where would any of us be without them? You know, Amaziah has the opportunity to be pruned right now. There is a man of God looking at him, telling him, even if you go, God's going to overthrow you before the enemy, for God has the power to do it. God can help you if you repent and be pruned, or he's going to overthrow you if you refuse. Amaziah has a tremendous opportunity here, although he has a different vision than what God wants. And you can see that inside of Amaziah. We always see two competing interests at play. He does what's right on one hand and then on the other hand, completely does what is against the law. And that is always inside of him. He has a different vision than what God wants for him. He has a different vision than what God wants for his family, the people of Israel. God cares about the field that he is planting with Amaziah and the Davidic sprout that he is waiting for fruit from. This is the Davidic line. And God is seriously concerned with what's going to happen out of this line. That's why he sends the man of God to warn him. But I want you to look at this for a second. He says, even if you go and fight courageously in battle, God will overthrow you. I want you to know that that's not quite what the Hebrew and the Greek says behind it. I'm, going to t- I'm just going to share a couple translations of verse 8 so you can get a little bit of the landscape like we said. In the ESV, the man of God is looking at Amaziah and he's saying, but go. Say that with me. But go. But go. Act. Be strong for battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? Take a look at the NASB. NASB says, but if you do go... Do it. If you do go, do it. Be strong for battle, yet God will bring you down before the enemy. And in the NKJV, New King James, he says, but if you go, be gone. Be strong in battle. Why don't you just go ahead, because I can already tell you have division in you, and you're going to do what we're telling you not to do anyway. Just do it with all your might. Go, be gone, be strong, all that you can. But God shall make you fall for the enemy. The NIV paints this as an uncertain question that the prophet is presenting. That's not what it's saying. More literal translations put a statement as a mocking charge. Man, this shouldn't strike you as odd. Does anybody see that and find that a little bit odd? I mean, this prophet is not quite loving, is he? I mean, he's encouraging the guy to go to his death. But you know what? We see it all of the time in our midst. People that really just don't want to grow in the field that they're planted in. You know what? If you pursue in that enough, there is no pastor or elder God can send to correct you. God will let you try to do it. And you know what you'll find out in the end? That ultimately, you've got weed-like tendency. Ultimately, he is sovereign and his truth will be shown. That's why it's all the more important right now to hear the truth of what God's saying and say, Man, I don't want to go. If he's not with me, then I am not going to go at all. I want to be planted in the field that God has me in. 
All right, so real quick, I'm going to be that guy who contextualizes it in a way that is uncomfortable as all get out. Amen. So, you know, the Lord has really called my family to peace. That's our mezuzah statement. What does the field around you produce? Does it match up? You know, the Lord has called us to be the warriors that, you know, we're marching out, we're gathering our soldiers, we're going to evangelize this way everywhere we go. Yeah? Does it match up with the field around you? You know, my husband heard from the Lord and stood with the pastors and our mezuzah statement was affirmed what we are called to do, but I'm just really not satisfied with it. I'd rather get to travel around a little bit and do more than I'm doing right now. That God is saying to you, go ahead. Yeah, go on and do it. It's harvest time. If that's what you want, then go and do it. That's what Ezra is recording the prophet speaking to the king who has both wheat and weed in him. Saying, if this is the vision that you want and you don't want to stand wholeheartedly in the vision I gave you, in the field I gave you, go have your fill and see what it produces. But we're not going to do that tonight. No. We are going to be weed in the house of God. Yeah. Will you read verse 9 for us? Amaziah asked the man of God, but what about the hundred talents I paid for these trees? <laughs> <laughs> the man of God replied, the Lord can give you much more than that. Now I know all of you are laughing, but yeah. <laughs> the man of God just said, but go, go, muster all your strength. He should have listened to that and said, hey, why are you telling me to do this? You just told me it was not right to do. Yeah. And the one thing he's concerned about is the money that he had paid to hire these guys. He is not concerned with being right with God in any facet or form. He's concerned with what it's cost him in his sin. After clear warnings from the prophets, he's just concerned with his money. And let's not make it just about money. He's just concerned with what the cost was in his own sin. He's the type of guy that when he gets a correction, he's, he immediately looks at not what I must do. He's not like listening to Acts 2 and cut to the heart saying, what must we do? He's looking at it and saying, what is it going to cost me? Man, has anybody in this room ever been corrected and sifted by the Lord? And you go, man, what's that going to cost me? Yeah. Yeah. Those are weed-like tendencies. Not many. No, I, I'm asking the question. I'm not going to say not many. I'm going to say how many look like wheat, but when they're only concerned with weed-like issues of where to get nutrients and water when a correction comes. How many look like wheat, they look like everyone else around until a correction comes and it shows exactly what they're concerned about. Oh nutrients and water. Wow. And, and the prophet's so gracious. He says, man... The Lord can give you much more than that. You, 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 you crazy simpleton. <laughs> Why are you thinking about money? The Lord can, he can blot out the skies with ravens to bring in provision for the wheat. He's done it many times. If God can clothe the lilies of the field, how much more can he clothe the wheat? Come on. Don't be concerned at the cost. God can pay the cost. God has more in abundance in his storeroom to pay the cost. You know, this brought up, and we're just going to share on this briefly, but this brought up to mind Luke 18, 25 through 30. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? 
Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is, is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Now I know none of us volunteered ourselves for the category of the rich in the room. And I promise you I'm not preaching to you about your social status, about your economic value or the place in which you were born. I'm speaking to those of you that are comfortable, that are complacent, that are concerned with your finances more than you are with your growth as a wheat. You want to make sure that the boat isn't rocked and that no selfish enjoyment is refused to you. That you get to enjoy all your weed-like necessities, your financial security, your self-enjoyment, your nourishment in this life and in the next. You want it all and you want it now. You want to have your good things now and later. Saints, those two things coexist in this room. And we're going to move on because we're going to burn up the weeds now Amen. so that we are not labeled before the King of Kings as weed instead of wheat. Amen. None of us categorize ourselves as the rich men when we read these things. But the reality is if more of your time, self-effort, as well as money, is spent upon your own self-gratification, your own comfort, then you are the rich man. Yeah. Hey, verse 10 and 11. Actually, get 12 as well. So Amaziah dismissed the troops who had, who had come to him from Ephraim and sent them home. They were furious with Judah and left for home in a great rage. They got paid. Amaziah then marshaled his strength and led his army to the Valley of Salt where he killed 10,000 men of Seir. The army of Judah also captured 10,000 men alive, took them to the top of a cliff, and threw them down so that all were dashed to pieces. Now, I want to capture a couple things about Amaziah here. Amaziah is doing what Amaziah does. Amazing weed-like tendencies. He does what's right. He listens to the prophet and sends these men home. But immediately he goes to war after that. Amaziah hired these men even though they were not right with the Lord. Think ungodly relationships. Union between people that you have no business being involved with. Bad company that is corrupting good character. Then Amaziah goes to fight with the Edomites, which was done by previous godly kings, but we don't have a record here that God directed this. He simply just hears a correction from the prophet, and then all of a sudden he goes to war and then throwing people off cliffs. Now, I, I'm not going to get into what the Torah says about all those kind of things. There were certain people that God said to totally destroy, but whatever. Amaziah has shown a clear propensity so far to do things that may seem right, even though they are birthed in the wrong motives. I wanna, we want to share something with you about this that you probably didn't know that was hidden in the text. We want to put Isaiah 11, verse 12 through 14 on the screen. He will raise a banner for the nations. Who's he? The son of David. Our son of David will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish 
and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. Thus far we preached on very difficult material. This is a prophecy that is about what the people of God will do, what they should do, what the son of David will lead them into. This is a prophecy that is given to the people of Israel during the same general time frame. It's just a little further into the future. This prophecy was given by, given by Isaiah would forecast a time when the long-standing civil war between the northern and southern kingdoms had come to an end. Saints, since the time of Rehoboam, brothers have been killing each other. It's forecasting a day that it would end. Hostility and jealousy would cease. That they would be united, Judah and Ephraim, and they would swoop down upon Edom together. And that when they did so, Edom would be defeated. Not just fight with them, that they would crush them. Consider how similar the weed-like fruit is here. This is something God said would happen. Through the exchange of money and men's greed that motivate them, there was a temporary cessation of hostilities. Through mutual self-interest, there was a unification around defeating an enemy. Through God's great mercy, victory was obtained against Edom. Sounds an awful lot like the prophecy. Sounds an awful lot like what Ephraim and Judah were called to do together. Sounds an awful lot like God's vision. Despite the similarities, a relative closeness to the prophecy that would be given one generation later, this event did not actually fulfill God's plan. Nor would it bring about a full, ripe harvest. Although it would bring about a different kind of harvest. A different kind of harvest that will have a full effect upon the people of God. They were in the field and had a vision that was close, but was not the same as God's. It looked similar, but was not the same. Bearing similar fruit and having a similar vision will bear a different outcome as we continue. Hmm. Now think of earlier, Amaziah was warned not to join forces with the northern kingdom. You remember that? And and who was it? Men of Ephraim. Ephraim. But he was warned not to join forces with them until they are ripe and full of righteousness. Up until this point, we've seen a few skirmishes in our books of Chronicles between these two, northern and southern kingdoms, but nothing like what is about to happen due to Amaziah's unwillingness to repent. Think about that for a second. In his mind, he might be thinking, well, there's a prophecy that says we're going to go fight Edom. We're going to be united again. And he goes out in his own weed-like strength and tries to make it all happen, even though God was not directing it. And even while thinking he was trying to do God's will, he actually creates the problem that God is trying to fix. He's the one that's going to cause some of the deadliest battles between the northern and southern kingdom. He's actually going to create the problem instead of fixing one. Man, I know... I know, pastors, this has never happened in this room. People think that they're trying to do God's will. They're trying to act on what God has told them. And in fact, they have done it in the wrong way and created the problem that God is trying to fix in the first place. See, it's a serious problem when you do not have a whole heart towards the Lord. When you have right actions, but your heart hasn't been perfected and matured in discipleship. 
And then you go off thinking you're going to do some good for the field that's all around us, but it ends up creating the problem. This is always the case. And I want you to hear this. This is always the case in those that are not aligned with the entire field of vision that God has given to his people. Wow. It is always the case that are with people that just think, you know, God sent me to this church to bless this church and not receive anything from it. <laughs> God sent me to this church for them to help me do what I'm called to do and not actually be a part of what this church is called to do. Wow. Those that are not aligned with the entire vision. They end up killing a little bit of the wheat around them. Thinking you are doing good all the while your strength is being sapped while you feed on what God is doing around you. Man, help me find my own flame. Help me find my own flame tonight. I don't just want to be in a wheat field thinking I'm a wheat because I'm surrounded by good wheat. I want to actually be a wheat who's contributing to the growth of the field. Don't you? Amen. Amen. Let's pick up and go on to verse 13. On to 15. Meanwhile, the troops that Amaziah had sent back and not allowed to take part in the war, in the war raided Judean towns from Samaria to Beth Haram. They killed 3,000 people and carried off great quantities of plunder. When Amaziah returned from the slaughtering from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought back the gods of the people of Syria. He set them up as his own gods, bowed down to them, and burned sacrifices to them. The anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah, and he sent a prophet to him who said, Why do you consult this people's gods, which could not save their own people from your hand? That's a reasonable question, isn't it? You just handed them their heads, so to speak. You're throwing them off cliffs, and their gods couldn't save them. Why is it that you're now consulting their gods? Although Amaziah was victorious over the Edomites... We think it's safe to say that they won the war posthumously. (laughs) It's pretty remarkable that while Amaziah might be doing some good, there is always a sinful root that he is fed from. Standing among the wheat with weed-like things that are choking out what would be good in his life. Over the years, it's been equally remarkable how many called and chosen saints have come to this spirit-filled, word-centered, sacrifice-driven field and have the same problem. We have a spirit-filled, word-centered, sacrifice-driven field that has a very specific vision. And yet we can sit in such a place and produce thorns and thistles. None of us are exempt from such things. They experience victories over some sins. When they were pointed out, But they can never be perfected, full, ripe in their hearts, callings, or families. Saints, it's not enough for us to have a similar vision. It's not enough for us to have similar fruit. We need the factual fruit of this field, of this house. (laughs) Look, I know what you're thinking. Poor Amaziah, right? He just can't seem to catch a break. I mean, he's, God has given him the victory, and yet he, he cannot seem to have victory over his own heart. I mean, God miraculously delivered the Edomites without the help he thought he needed, and the Edomites actually won the battle. There was a seed there that was planted in the hearts of Amaziah and yeah. the people. You know, poor Amaziah, right? He just can't get right. No, it's not poor Amaziah. What Amaziah needs to do in that moment is cry out and say, God, change these weed-like tendencies in me. 
He should look at the fact that there has never been a time in his life where there were not weed-like tendencies. And he should look at that and go, man, I need to be changed. But instead he does something different. If that wasn't enough, they could not sense the chaff-like areas of their lives that the Lord's anger burned over. Do you hear the prophet saying to him? It says the anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah and he sent a prophet to him. Burned. Man, he would not know that the Lord's anger is burning over him unless a prophet was sent. It is a terrifying thought that God's anger burned against Amaziah, and yet he didn't know it until a prophet pointed it out. He was operating in all of these weed-like tendencies next to the wheat, and yet God was angry, and God was preparing him for the fire. One of the most underrated truths in the entire Bible is the propensity for chaff. To be completely oblivious to the fires that are raging. I've noticed that that men who are in danger of being bundled with the weeds, they don't know it. They simply don't feel it, don't know it. They think it's just a matter of, well, you know, something in the field's not right. No, yeah, that, that actually is true. Something in your field is not right. You're the problem in the field. Look, I know it's not the most pleasant thing to think about. And we are going to move on to some amazing things. But perhaps the chaff is oblivious because it stopped hearing the Lord's warnings long ago. Amaziah has already shown a tendency to hear what the prophet says and go, hmm, okay, well, I'm going to do that and then I'll go do whatever, whatever else I want to do. Chaff is oblivious because they stopped hearing the Lord's warnings long ago. Man, you remember all the prophecies in Revelation? He who has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit is saying. And yet so many have trouble hearing what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. That's why we're here tonight and we're saying, hey, listen, God's speaking something. You've got to listen. And then when there's other people in the the field that are not listening, you've got to help them listen. Because it's a dangerous thing when we are hearing and yet never perceiving. It's a dangerous thing when we're hearing the accurate truth that we need to hear. And yet we're not putting it into action. And I'm going to tell you, it happens every Sunday and every Wednesday. That's why the pastors look at us after on fellowship nights and they say, hey, what did you get out of the message? And we're like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I like that you started in the Torah and then went from the prophets to the writings. <laughs> Church, it's time to wake up and hear what God is saying. If God is taking his time to speak something to you, Perhaps it's actually because he wants to give you fruit like wheat. Look, they stopped hearing the Lord's warning long ago. And therefore, they can't sense that the fire is getting closer. Everyone that I have ever seen come into this church and then leave due to God's judgment did not sense it before it was about to happen. They thought everything was fine. Everything's normal. No, I don't have a problem. It's just something that's got to be worked out with the pastors, you know. They just got to start doing something different, you know. We all got to work together to get things done. No, they just simply didn't sense that that they were being bundled up and carried to the fire. Our charge to you tonight is listen to the word of the Lord. When God speaks every service, every time there's a fellowship meeting, every time Bibles crack open or someone calls you or has a word to share with you or a correction, listen to it. That will protect you from being bundled up with the weeds and carrying to the fire all the while you're thinking you're on your way to a heaven in the sky. So we're going to pick up from this, and I know that's heavy to hear. 
But we need to hear it, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. This protects us from being bundled up with the weeds. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Look, as we transition to verse 16, we are going to learn to stand and come out of this. And there are some more details about the man's life that are pertinent to us. Stay tuned in. Amen. Read verse 16. While he was still speaking, the king said to him, Have we appointed you an advisor to the king? Stop. Why be struck down? So the prophet stopped, but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you, because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Tell you the truth tonight, Amaziah is on fire right now and he doesn't even know it. Yeah. I am thankful for the warning that we've received, for the things that we've seen. I am personally more concerned with those of you that are on fire right now in your own lives, and you don't know it. Not for those of you that will leave and run off. Those of you that are smoldering and burning in the flames of God are consuming every area of your life that you touch, and you don't notice it. When the deceitfulness of chaff reaches this point, it always has the same effect. It shows up in your children. It shows up in your spouse. It shows up in your work. It shows up everywhere that you go even if your butt is sitting in a seat right now. (laughs) The more obvious ones are the ones that are consumed wholly and we can see from a distance they're just gone. But like Deuteronomy 29, 19 warns us, we can't stare death in the face and feel ourselves secure. We must not persist in going in our way because it will not go well. As surely as the sun is rising, where the Lord is applying heat, applying fire that should be consuming chaff, you cannot ignore it. There is a final consequence. Even if he is patient and it takes time, you will hit a brick wall. That's not good preaching. That's not an enthusiastic thing to say. That's just the reality in the room right now. It must change or you will reap the consequences and there is a limit to God's mercy. Which is why he told us yesterday, there's a limit to my mercy and you will not mock me any longer. Verse uh, 17. After Amaziah, king of Judah, consulted his advisors, he sent this challenge to Jehoash, the son of Jehoash, the son of Jehu, king of Israel. Come, meet me face to face. Another fatal flaw on the way to being burned. He had just heard the, the man of God say, I know that God has determined to destroy you. I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have not listened to my counsel. And what's the first thing he does? Goes and buys his own counsel. He consulted his advisors. He consulted his friends that always tend to agree with him no matter what. He went out and found the people that tend to tell him the things that he wanted to hear. Consulting advisors instead of the Spirit and the Word. Anytime the Lord gives you a correction, the first thing you should do is seek the Lord's counsel. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, as a matter of fact, you received the Lord's counsel. Now it's your turn to put it into effect. When you've received a correction, it is the Lord's counsel. Don't go seek another counsel. You've already been given it. The next thing he does is then start to challenge his brothers. Man, that's not shocking, isn't it? He seeks his own counsel, then builds up a defense and challenges his brothers. It literally says, he sends a challenge to Israel. Come meet me face to face. Be warned that if you feel a rising sense in you, a need to discredit everyone around you, 
it might be proof that you're on the way to being burned. But we're not going to do that tonight. We are going to have life and be wheat, aren't we? Amen. Let's pick up in verse 18. But Joash, king of Israel, replied to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon. (laughs) Give me your daughter, give your daughter to my son in marriage. Then a wild beast in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. All right, so this is not exactly how we would typically communicate, but I think you'll get it really quickly, especially, it's Alicia in the room, she likes some good smack talk. (laughs) The thistle in the parable is Amaziah. The thistle is small, thorny, it produces almost nothing good, and it's easily trampled upon, it just hurts a little bit when you do it. The cedar is Joash. The beast is the armies of the northern kingdom. So he's saying, you, this little thistle, are speaking to me a great cedar about wanting to fight, and it's not even worth my time. You're saying you want these things from me. You're entreating a marriage. The beast of Lebanon, that is my armies, are going to trample you underfoot like the blade of grass that you are, and I will smear you into the earth. Stop doing what you're doing. He's letting him know this is a bad idea. You may walk over, but you will be limping back. <laughs> Next verse. You say to yourself that you have defeated Edom, and now you are arrogant and proud. Now hold on for a second. You say to yourself that you have defeated Edom. Who defeated Edom? The Lord, the Lord did. And yet Amaziah is saying, I did. Keep going. And now you are arrogant and proud. But stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall? And that of Judah also. Man, this is the final nail in Amaziah's coffin. The northern king, who is wicked. God said it earlier. The northern king sees Amaziah's condition better than Amaziah does. Even though both are wicked. Have you ever had somebody who is not in love with the Lord correct you? Yeah. Yes. It's happened to me many times. Yes. It's pretty shameful. But yes. This is exactly what's going on to Amaziah right now. A wicked man is actually being merciful to him. He's looking at him and saying, hey, that's not a good idea for you to be doing this. The northern king warns Amaziah that he is being prideful and haughty because he's being puffed up by his own victories. And then the northern king begs him to stay home for the sake of himself and the whole field. The northern king doesn't want to do this. He's like, hey, I don't want to destroy you. I don't want to have to do this. Don't make me, please. Notice here that Amaziah can't see himself rightly because of what? Because of the supernatural. It is pride. But there's a reason why he has pride. He can't see himself rightly because of the supernatural victory that God gave him. He's treating that victory as his victory. And it's puffing him up. Man, you could say the victory ended up being a curse instead of a blessing. This shows up in men and women in this room. When other men are pleading with you to get your heart right, to get your heart right for your family, to get your family's heart right, and yet you defend yourself by stating your testimony or past areas where you have a perceived victory. I want to say this, and I want you to get it. I'm going to say it a couple times right now. We must learn that it is often not our losses that are the most deadly to us. It's not our losses that are the most deadly to our walks, but it is our victories that are most deadly. Yeah. It is often not your losses that cause you to fall away. 
It's often the victories that you think you have that cause you to be prideful and miss something. He is, there is a man that is taking his time to correct him. I mean, this northern king could just go, hey, screw it. You want to you tango? Let's do this. I'll take everything that you own and bring it back to my kingdom. And yet he's taking the time to warn him, don't do this, please. This is a pastor sitting down saying, hey, please, do not do this any longer. Don't think like this. Don't speak like this anymore. Don't allow your wife to think like this. Don't allow your children to act like this. And yet, out of our victories, we kind of think, oh, man, God's still with me. God has done this for me. I have so many things God has done. And you might not be saying that to the pastor, but you're surely thinking of it. Uh When you walk away from the conversation, you're like, man, I'm okay. God's shown himself to be on my side. He's given me. We have overcome in the past, and we will overcome again. We want to take the time to talk to you, and this is the core of where we want to be at. We want to talk to you about a certain kind of dependency that we have to walk in. All of the time. Your victories can kill you. It may look like after you've gotten them that the Lord has come through. But that seed that is planted in your heart. The pride that you believe that this is my victory. That God did this for me because he loves me. And he's always going to be with me. Those kind of things will kill you. We want to share a few scriptures on that topic. I think for the sake of time we're going to read them to you. I'm asking you to pay attention to it as if it was in your own Bible. Follow along with us. I promise this is going to bring you to where you need to be. It will address the issue and it will help you stand firm. Do you want to succeed? Yes. Then follow me. 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of Of what he has and what he does. Come not from the Father, but from the world. Any boasting of what a man does or has in the world is not from the Father. The reality is many of the victories that we take great pride in and insulate ourselves from further condemnation, at least the feeling of it, came from the Lord, of course. But we're usually provided by a pastor or a friend who's standing in the gap for you. And the reality is you would have never seen that victory without them. Remove the boasting. Eliminate it so that we might be one with the Father. 1 Corinthians 10, 11-13. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Say warning. 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 On whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So... If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now that is just as pashat as it gets. If at any point, any moment, any conversation, any point in the day that you think you're standing firm like, man, I'm good, I got this, I don't need to worry about this area of my life, you have to be careful lest you fall. How many of you have told yourself over and over again, I am not going to do this and that sin again? And you tell yourself that, and you keep trying, and you're like, man, I'm not going to do it, until you do. Man, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. Satan loves an unguarded strength. Satan loves for you to feel all puffed up like a weed, thinking that you've got this, when in fact you really don't. He's very good. If If the Lord... If Satan right now was to tempt you with something that you just absolutely have no desire for, 
absolute, the worst type of sin, you would look at it and be like, man, that's not a problem. But if, this, if Satan can get you feeling like you are confident, feeling like you are secure, feeling like there is no possibility that you could ever fall, then that, he's got you right where he wants you. Yeah. Now the truth is, we can have confidence in the Lord. We can have confidence in what he's doing in our lives. But it's not the kind of confidence that says, I'm invincible. We have to have a sobering examination of yeah. our life and say, man, I've got to be protected from this. Yes. I have got... Any victory I've gotten in the past doesn't mean I'm going to have a victory tomorrow. I have to treat every day like a battle and keep fighting in dependency of the Lord because I want to actually win and be a wheat. Let me add just a piece of clarity to that. I can see in many of your eyes when you hear Justin talking about an unguarded strength, you thought about the single man in the room and pornography. Mm -hmm. That's not at all what we're talking about. Because I love you, I will put our lives on display. The unguarded strength that we have been hammered with in my own personal life in the kibbutz is the state of our actual home. I assure you, and I can see in you now, the weakness that the enemy is looking to exploit in you is not the trivial things that you think about when you hear the word an unguarded strength. It's the areas that the enemy is ravaging the state of your wife, that he is stealing your children's attention, he's stealing their devotion, and things are just becoming... Rules and regulations. Because there isn't an actual fire of the Holy Ghost. It's become something that is just rote obedience rather than an actual love affair. The ways in which he is killing us through an unguarded strength is in our homes. We have strong homes because we have good pastors who have taught us how to build them. They're a heck of a lot stronger than everything that you see around you, including the spirit-filled Christian world. And that is an area that the enemy is longing, looking, and succeeding in beating us in. No more. No more in this house. We're going to stand up as the husbands and pastors that we're called to be and recognize it. I'm going to start reading to you Jeremiah 17, 5 through 6. I'm going to get the ugly part. Then Justin's going to get the fun part. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusted man, who depends on flesh for his strength. And whose hearts turn away from the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in strength. Strength of your own willpower. Strength in your own direction. Your own ability to hear from God becomes a God unto yourself. And you can't accept someone else hearing God. But I've heard from the Lord. Let me just say this. If an elder feels like something is a good idea for you to do it. And he's taking time to pray about it. Shut your mouth and stop praying and do what he said. Yes. We have a vision that comes from this field. Either he put you here for a reason or not. Listen, your strength is meant to be bent to the Lord and to the field. It is not your God and it is not up to you to decide. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wasteland. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert and a salt land where no one lives. Listen, you can dwell with the wheat and endure alongside the wheat, but be a weed the entire time. And you won't see the prosperity when it comes. You know, we were reading about a famine the other day at the One Association Conference. We were doing our homework, reading the chapters around what the pastors were preaching on. 
And there were these lepers that got to see God's provision. But there was a commander that doubted what God would do. That was standing next to the righteous. But he himself never got to see it. Oh, that you would spend your time at LCM, but never be the one who saw the prosperity that God had promised. We must bend our heart, will, mind, and emotions in every area to become what he has called us to be. Those who depend on their own vision, their own version, their own standard. It's like chaff blowing around in the desert. You may be in the land, but you won't be here to see salvation. It is not possible to look back on any victory and say, it was you. It was him. And we must learn inside of our hearts, not just our speech, to turn it to him. Now, Jeremiah 17 has a curse for those that depend on their own strength. Whatever that is for you, take it. Whatever that means for you, your own strength. Uh, man, I'm re- man, I'm very prophetic. Until you get one wrong. Because you trust it in your own ability to prophesy. Man, I'm really good at reading the scripture. Until you miss something that God is trying to share with you. Yeah. Whatever that strength is that you know that you go around telling everybody or you feel all propped up because you're strong in an area, just <laughs> think about that. Yeah. There's a curse for people that rely on that. Yeah. But you know what there also is? Come on. Yes. There is a blessing Praise for the man that trusts Hallelujah. in the yes. Lord. Amen. There is a certain kind of blessingness, happiness, whatever you want to call it, for those that trust in the Lord. Amen. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Whose confidence is in Him. Amen. He will be like a tree planted by the water. That sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Come on. You might say it, it does not fear when a sifting comes. Come it does Ooh. not fear whenever the axe is at the root. Because its confidence is in the Lord. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Now, I know, I know what all of you do when you read that verse. You're like, man, I need to focus on always being green, never fearing, not having any worry, and always bearing fruit. That's not the answer. That is the fruit of trusting in the Lord and having your confidence in the Lord. The truth is, is if your trust is in the Lord, your confidence is in the Lord, you accept whatever the Lord brings into your life because you know He is the nourishing sap to your root. Amen. Amen. And when you do those things, this is what it produces yeah. in you. It produ- you become someone who has no fear. Amen. You become someone who's always green, radiant, vibrant, verdant, always bearing fruit. Your worries seem to fade in the limelight of all those things. Man, it's a beautiful thing when you put your full confidence, your ripe confidence, your perfect confidence in the Lord. I say this is the time to let our own unguarded strength die. Amen. And put the full trust in the Lord. Even though you may not have everything right in your life, that's okay. Wheat often bend in the wind sometimes. But you want to know, over a span of time, they produce the fruit of the field. Psalm 52, 8 through 9 is a favorite of ours. You may recognize it. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will, I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope for your name is good. Saints, his name is good in this house. Yes. 
I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Saints, the writer of the psalm is comparing his trust to the Lord, to an olive tree that is able to survive no matter the sifting, no matter the difficult circumstances, because it is near the presence of God. An olive tree flourishes in adversity because it is advantaged by adversity. It depends upon the presence of God and it sustains it. Trusting, praising, and hoping is what makes us flourish until we are ripe with fruit. But you have to catch that last part of verse 9. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. There is no other place to praise him, to stand and contend for the faith than the field that he planted you in. That is where he will sustain you. That is where you will find real strength. Hey, let's look at Matthew 5. Listen to Matthew 5 and don't just think of it as the Sunday school passage you've always heard about. But listen to this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. These are all descriptors of a man or a wheat who is desperate for the Lord at all times. The main difference between a wheat and a weed is that the wheat is dependent. A wheat cannot survive on its own. A wheat needs the Lord. The wheat is hungry and thirsty for the Lord. The wheat is meek and mourning and poor in spirit at all times. This is not just some kind of Christian beggar on the side of the road. This is an attitude of heart that is created by dependency. Saying, Lord, I do not want to trust in my own strength. I do not want to trust in my own victories that weren't even mine in the first place. They were yours. Lord, I need you every hour of the day. Lord, I need you to come in and feed me because I want to last till the end. There is a dependency in those that are weak. And I want you to get that. They're not puffed up and prideful. They are conscious of their ever-increasing need of the Lord. Have you ever been praying? And you're just praying and, and, and you're like, man, this is what I needed. And then while you're praying, you realize, I need to pray more. Or you're worshiping and you're like, man, this is just what the doctor ordered. i got to keep coming back to this. Dependency creates more dependency in your life. The more that you are dependent and crying out to the Lord, He reveals to you how really weak you are on your own, and you become more dependent. It's like, I love to love you because it makes me love you more. (laughs) Lord, I love to be around you because it makes me want to be around you more. Man, cry out to the Lord in dependency, and He will fill you with an increasing hunger that causes you to walk in dependency. John 15, 4-8. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. This is that kind of dependency that we're talking about. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, He is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, 
showing, somebody say showing, showing, yourselves to be my disciples. And I wonder how many victories were just outward signs of people leaning on their own strength. This is what it means to understand how to depend upon Christ. That you become what he is. You become that vine and you stand for what that vine produces. God has planted us in a field that produces a very specific kind of fruit. Disciples that show themselves to be of Christ. The wheat that understand this principle the most are the ones that are constantly leaning on his strength and the brothers that Christ has provided. I'm going to go ahead and scan down and read to you John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Saints, the repetition here is on purpose. He's trying to get you to understand the degree to which we must become one with him and one with those he's called us to serve him with. Whatever you ask in his name. Saints, when we become who he is, you will not be asking for something outside of his will. And you will see him provide supernaturally for his work. Our next passage is 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Look, it is by Grace. Yes. He can fulfill every good purpose. He can make you worthy of his calling. He can be glorified in you and you in him. His power and grace work in those the most that have the most need of it. Say that again. His power and grace work in those the most that have the most need of it. He absolutely can do that inside of you. It all depends on how dependent you want to be on him. Amen. So we're going to pick up with some pace. We've got a little bit of ground to cover, and then we're going to work towards a close. Let's pick up in verse 20 and keep going. would not listen, for God so worked that he might hand them over to joy, because they sought the gods of Edom. Saints, notice it says, God so worked that he might hand them over. Thought God's desire was to save men. Yes, it is. His desire is to save wheat. Earlier, the prophet says that God determined to kill him because he refused to listen. In verse 19, Joash told him that this would cause his downfall, but he persisted in his own way. Amaziah, and we're going to leave it as Amaziah, has crossed a place where God no longer wants to save him, despite the fact that he has testimonies. That he has walked in Christ, that he was previously a part of the vine. He now wants to burn him because he is chaff inside of his larger body that he preserves. The Lord did plan to put Amaziah to death, but it was Amaziah who caused his own downfall by not listening. You can say God was sifting. Satan was sifting. But above all, Amaziah sifted himself right out of God's plan. The solution to this is to be able to hear what God is saying to us in these times and act on it. Not treat it as trivial, 
but soften our hearts and respond to the voice of the Almighty. This is the Lord's mercy on us. He desires that we do not perish. So he's showing us how to become the wheat that we are called to. Trying to rescue those that are staggering back towards slaughter. Hebrews 3, 7 says, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, say, hear his voice, hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. At this point, he was incapable of hearing God's voice. But you know who's not? You who are in this room. You are not incapable of hearing his voice. In fact, if you're hearing my voice right now, you are still hearing his voice. That means if you hear, you still have a chance. Yes. But it's up to you. John 7, 37 says, One, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Saints, if you can hear the loud voice of the Spirit, He is saying, Come to me, those who are thirsty, and I will give you to drink. Let him come, let him come, let him come now that you might grow into the wheat that you're called to be. He will provide what we need to grow and become more, but we cannot stay where we have been. Brother, will you pick up in 21 and go through 24? So Jehoash, king of Israel, attacked. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. Judah was routed by Israel, and every man fled to his own. Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, and the king, the son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh. Then Jehoash brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, a section about 600 feet, 600 feet long. He took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of God that had been in the care of Obed-Edom, together with the palace treasures and the hostages, and returned to Samaria. Man, so you thought this was all about Amaziah? Mm-hmm. until the entire nation gets attacked. When a weed gets plucked, the weed are damaged. We read that earlier, right? We are a collective field. When one person, one family, one church suffers, when one person is found out to be wheat, weeds, the entire wheat field suffers for it. Yeah. You see, you think your dependency is just... You know, a matter of your own salvation. It's not. The cost of dependency may be the cost of your family. The cost of not being dependent on the Lord and being dependent on your own strength might just cost your family. This is what happens when one person falls away and gets plucked as a weed. Don't you not feel that? Don't you not feel damaged by what happens? See, this is the cost of dependency. This is why we must every area of our life rid out the things that are not dependent on the Lord. Any defense that you have, burn it. Any propensity to defend yourself or how you look or your own strength and victories, burn it. Because when one weed gets plucked, the entire wheat field suffers. We're going to do this together, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Together we are stronger. Let's not have any one of us fail in this area. Verse 25, and we're going to finish out. Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoash king of Israel. As for the other events of Amaziah's reign, from beginning to end, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they conspired against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. 
But they sent men after him to Lachish and killed him there. He was brought back by horse and was buried with his fathers in the city of Judah. It's a pretty miserable end for a miserable life. We don't have time to go into Lachish tonight in the geography of Israel. But it's worth noting that this man who once walked with Christ, like Hebrews 10.26, finished his life in fearful expectation of judgment. From the moment that he turned from the Almighty God. Look, I want to tell you that 1 Peter 4 says that it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Amen. It begins with us. And it goes on to say, what will the outcome be for the unrighteous around us? Peter goes on in that passage to exhort us about standing and contending for the faith and suffering that we might be refined. I think Peter knew a little bit about suffering and being sifted and being refined. Yeah, he, he knew how to strengthen his brothers and that's why he taught on it. This place we would like to read a piece of the prophecy that we started with again. Take courage, O wheat, for I will refine you like Peter. And be afraid, O chaff, and repent, or I will burn you. I am shaking this church, and what can be shaken will fall off, and what cannot stand. But this is coming to an end. I am coming to a crossroads, and I will not allow it any longer. Romans 15.5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you, LCM, a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Went on. The Lord spoke, church, we're on a mission. The one association is on a mission. LCM is on a mission in tandem with the mission of the one association. It is time to crucify and leave your own counter missions behind. Today is the day that you crucify those things. And you come into the fold with one mind, one heart, with one body in Jesus Christ. Amen. That your own desires pass away. That God's mission and the mission of this body is all that you will stand for. We read about kings and prophets coming to them. We say, how could they disregard the word of the Lord? Saints, the word of the Lord has come to us. The question is, how will we respond to it? Like David or Amaziah? I intend to be like David tonight. We have two passages we want to read to you in closing, and then we're quite intentionally going to allow your pastors to take over, and we're going to follow their direction. Amen. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 11, and then Justin will close us out with 1 Peter 5. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Saints, we thank God for you, and this statement is true about you. You have been enriched. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. As you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed, He will keep you strong to the end. So that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into a fellowship with His Son... Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree with one another so that there may be no 
divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought tonight. 1 Peter 5, 10-11. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. Amen. He himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He is capable of doing that. He will do that. And he can do that right now. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Go ahead and stand to your feet, guys. These guys have shared with us an excellent, timely word that built on what we experienced yesterday. From the prophecy that came forth in worship, it accurately and precisely put his finger on what the Lord is dealing with us now. And it's right to say on it. The content that we covered tonight is largely centered around wheat and wheat. You know, the we've been around uh, imagery that's used for sermon illustrations regarding wheat and wheat. But I want to remind you tonight of how it's so pointed for tonight. When they come to a point of maturity, the wheat and the wheat, the wheat has heads of grain that become heavy. And you can tell it's wheat at that point of maturity by the way that it bows. There's a humility that's there. The weed never bow. They have what looks like fruit. It's actually a poisonous seed. And it, it is stiff-necked. No matter how strong the wind, it will stay in a prideful position. What we're looking and to do is respond to God directing our hearts of what inside of us will not bow. Where, what is he pointing out that is going to come to a point of maturity, a full fruition, that will be dealt with, but that we can't deal with now? He's identifying in us these areas that do not want to submit to his word, that do not want to submit to the righteous and divine nature that he's trying to help us get. It takes a, a foundational transformation to make that exchange. Yeah. Putting their, their finger at, or precisely on what kind of fruit are you producing? Not just the fact that you're producing fruit. But does it look like what's growing in the field around you? And the worst thing that can happen to us is that we have self-deception. And we look around and call ourselves weak just because of the proximity that we are to be. Well, we ourselves are tears. I don't want to come to the point of full fruition, a harvest of the end goal of my life, and realize I was just a stiff-necked weed. They didn't want to bow. I want to make sure my heart is always bowing. 
to bow before the Lord is gaining the freedom from pride and arrogance and having an accurate estimate of my own worth. That uh, scripture last week, should we have one more verse, to verse 10. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, the refinement process, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I remember I just got through walking with the imagery with you about the tear or the wheat versus the wheat. And how that wheat is stiff-necked. It doesn't bow. It seems to be firm, or strong, firm, and steadfast. But if you undergo the refining process and humble yourself, God will get from you what he wants out of the wheat nature in you. And then his strength will restore you and make you be what the tear over the wheat was trying to do in its own strength. That's the Jeremiah 17 connection. Curses the man who leans on his own strength. Curses the man who acts like a weed who doesn't bow. But blessed is a man who humbles himself like wheat because God will eventually bring you to that same point in destination. He will himself restore you. That's his job. We also, the other scripture that we just talked through is First Peter 4. This is why you invite the judgment of God now. So that you prove that you're actually wheat and not a weed. We want to encourage you tonight that God is very serious about this. It's going to show. It's going to be manifest. You've already seen it. In the last days and weeks, you've seen people leave this church. Yeah. Weeds. God is right in His judgment. We do not. You have a few minutes when you're upset because you realize the destiny of that person and you realize God is good and He's going to make the right judgments and He has. Let's lift our hands together tonight.